happy Mother's Day. We're so glad that you're here, moms especially. And I know all of you, you just kind of might wonder, like, how did that really get started? How did Mother's Day get started? And for many folks, I think you think you know how it went down. You call it a Hallmark holiday, claiming that the company invented it in order to increase profits. You know, businesses do that, right? But you know, that's simply not true. And so I thought you might find it interesting to know the rest of the story. So here we go. The day we know as Mother's Day was first celebrated in 1907 when Anna Jarvis held the first Mother's Day service of worship at Andrews Methodist Episcopal Church in Grafton, Virginia, West Virginia, which is about 250 miles due east of here, the chair that you're sitting in right now. Today, it holds the International Mother's Day Shrine. Anna Jarvis campaigned to make Mother's Day a recognized holiday beginning two years prior when her own mother had died. She was a peace activist who cared for wounded soldiers on both sides of the Civil War. And she'd been urging for the creation of Mother's Day called a Mother's Day for Peace where mothers would be praying and asking that their husbands and sons would no longer be killed in wars. Anna Jarvis wanted to honor this, so she set this aside. She wanted this day of honor so that all mothers could be celebrated as what she said, quote, the person who has done more for you than anyone else in the world, end quote. In 1908, Congress rejected a proposal to make Mother's Day an official holiday. They joked that we might have to proclaim a mother's law day too. Despite that, thanks to Anna Jarvis, by 1911, just three years later, all U.S. states observed the holiday. And in 1914, Woodrow Wilson signed a proclamation designating Mother's Day to be held on the second Sunday in May as a national holiday to honor moms. By the early 1920s, this is where it gets interesting. Hallmark and other companies started selling Mother's Day cards. Anna Jarvis started the holiday as a church holiday, a liturgical tradition. So she resented the commercialization of the holiday. She believed companies misinterpreted and exploited the holiday, which was supposed to be an emphasis on true sentiment, not profit. Then she started organizing boycotts of Mother's Day, and she threatened to sue card companies. She said, people should appreciate and honor their mothers through handwritten letters expressing their love and gratitude instead of buying gifts and pre-made cards. She protested at a candy maker's convention in Philadelphia. She protested at a meeting of American war mothers in 1925 because she was angry that they were selling carnations on Mother's Day to raise money. She was arrested for disturbing the peace. In 1943, she organized a petition to rescind Mother's Day. But the efforts were stopped when she was placed in a mental institution in Westchester, Pennsylvania. People connected with the greeting card industry, as well as flower companies, 
paid the bills to keep her in the mental institution. She died in 1948. She is buried next to her mother. So happy Mother's Day. And I want you to know, every year, and my wife knows this, every year, my mother now has been gone almost 41 years. And there is not a Mother's Day that I do not long to talk to my mom. So do it. Call her. Don't let it slip away while you can. Take your Bibles. Turn to Luke chapter 12. And as you turn there, I want to tell you about something that Amy and I did for three of our kids. And when I say Amy and I did, my wife led the charge, all right? Our youngest will turn 21 in less than a month. And Amy took the initiative to purchase this thing. You know, those things that, those cans that popcorn comes in around Christmas, has the three different kinds, got a big lid, about this tall, it's round like that, got a bunch of popcorn. Well, it looks like that. I thought about bringing it into the room, but I didn't want you staring at it the whole time. But this thing is a time capsule, a time capsule for your children. There's all sorts of things in it. You are to, you're instructed to place maybe a favorite toy that in the first year, pictures, things that mattered most, and including a booklet that Amy and I filled out and stuck it inside. In that booklet, you filled out interesting facts from the year of the birth, cost of eggs, cost of bread, cost of gas, homes, that kind of stuff. It also had, interesting enough, a prognosticating section where you guess, where Amy and I guess what life would look like in 2022. Each of my three children also received a personal letter from both of us individually. And I did not read Amy's letter, nor did she mine. I certainly don't remember all that I wrote, nor was I smart enough to keep a copy of it for myself so that I can look back at it. But I do remember thinking this. What do I want my child to know? What timeless truth do I want to give them? Regardless of what happened in those 21 years, what is it that I want them to know? Now, 21 years later, here I am, and I have a different view of that letter. I want to know if what I said is important has been exhibited by how I actually live. Because there's a whole lot, there's a difference sometimes about what we say and what, what we do. Was I foolish in what I wrote as important? Or did I convey what is vital, what is essential? Did I give them the principles to live a well-shaped, foolproof life? A few weeks ago, Pastor Brad unpacked this passage across three sermons, focusing on the monetary link that it has to our lives and what Jesus actually did, that he spoke more about money than heaven or hell. And as we look back at that section of scripture, I want you to see something else, something that's there if you look carefully. It's the frame of mind that we can live from. The evidence for it is there. And so I want to give you some context before we read this passage again. 
Jesus in this passage, based upon a guy saying something to him, he gives a warning, a warning that we all need to hear. Watch out for covetousness. Now, that's not a word that we typically use a lot in our lives, but the word in the New American Standard actually maybe the better word to use is the word greed. Watch out for greed, and it comes in various forms. And so through, the par- through a parable here and an illustration after that, Jesus exposed what foolish living actually can look like. So picking up Luke chapter 12, verse 13 and following. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness or greed. There there it is. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. Now, stop there at verse 18. Look at it. If you mark in your Bible, I encourage you to do this. Mark this first instance. He said in verse 18, I will. If you look a little further there in verse 18, I will do this. I, there it is again. I will tear down. And here it is, the other one, my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods, which should show you that it's not just about the agriculture here, this is, this guy's got, he's loaded, all right? Verse 19, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things that you have prepared Whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now, looking at what Jesus says in the text here, I believe that there are some markers that we need to watch for in our lives. Markers that could say to us, I'm living foolish. I'm doing or thinking in foolish ways. So let's examine that. First off this. We see that a self-absorbed life is a fool's life. A self-absorbed life is a fool's life. Now, here is the action and result way of saying that. Living self-absorbed, even when you can't see it, it makes you a fool. This is life turned inward, given to thinking about oneself continuously. One state of affairs continuously. It is looking at life void of God's perspective and certainly void of God's final say about life. And I want you to know, as I look at this text and as I've read this text through the years, I know that it's tempting for some to just skip over this parable 
not because they're ignoring death, but personal application doesn't seem appropriate because of two things that are work in us. First off, we don't think we're the rich person. We just don't think we're rich. But you don't have to be rich to think like him or actually to admire his plan, to admire his circumstance and his initiative in making this plan. In fact, honestly, we can see a lot of good in his plan. And we have difficulty really grasping that he was wrong for having the plan that he had. We think that, this is what we think, his death was just untimely. In fact, we also know just a couple chapters away in Luke 14, we see it plainly that the Bible encourages wise, wise planning and strategy. We're going to get to that, not today, but in the weeks ahead. It's important. But see this. There are 11, count them, 11 places in three verses where this man's true colors are on display, verse 17, 18, 19. And he actually may be more like you than you realize. Here it is. The pronouns I and my are at the center of it. His whole world was reduced to the size of his good fortune and how it was interpreted. He is congratulating himself, making plans for himself to reach the place where ease and comfort were realized It's kind of this, retire, eat, drink, and be merry. And so I ask, is this kind of, not fully maybe, but kind of your frame for your dream? Now, I'm not asking you how much you have. But rather, do you have a wonderful plan? If you're like me, you got a 403K, 401K, or 403B. You have less today than you had two weeks ago, all right? So I'm not asking about how much you've got. I'm asking about your plan, the dream that you have for your life. And this question also, where does God fit into that dream? One of the blessings of living in a capitalist republic is that we have evidence that hard work and taking risk can breed reward. Risk is not a bad thing. Risk is right. John Piper wrote a book, Risk is Right. But we're wrong to think or to teach that God's kingdom is a lot like a capitalist economy where God is ready to reward the hardworking rule keeper. See, Scripture shows us the kingdom of God is for the beggar. The kingdom of God is for the broken. The kingdom of God is for that person sitting here with shattered dreams who realize, I need a Savior and I cannot save myself. I need help outside of me. Parents, you have enormous influence on how your children if you have them, and or, for those of you who don't, your family and friends see and understand the kingdom of God if you call yourself a follower of Christ. 
Do they see in you that you know that life is precious and that life is a gift? Every waking moment is a gift. And when you know Christ, do they see that everything gets framed with him in view? Do you know that right now, right at this very moment, Christ is on the throne? And it's just a matter of time when all things, all kingdoms, they're going to recognize it. And if you want those that you love to know the reality of that, you cannot live self-absorbed. You cannot live a life that everything is just about what's in it for you, how you're seeing, how you're respected, how you're portrayed. Don't live self-absorbed. Don't live with only your plans in view. There's a second reason why we tend to just kind of skip over this parable, not thinking much about it. It's because of this. We see untimely death and we see untimely death and use the word untimely because of this. We all think time is on our side. In virtually every funeral sermon that I've preached, I am speaking to the living not to the deceased. And funeral messages are sober reminders. There is a day that God has in ink that you just have out there in fuzzy land. I recently had a friend that died. He died reading a newspaper. And he had a will, and at the reading of the will... The size of his estate ended up surprising all of us who knew him well. So I ask you, how would you feel if you were informed that you were to inherit a hundred million dollars? Now, before you start thinking, I need to get to be friends with Pastor Brian. I was not named in that will. And if you wonder how much he left, it's the same that we all leave. We leave it all. Words to this effect is what I wrote to my children in that letter. One of the things that I said, I said, speaking to my heart and knowing it to be true because I know the temptation. Here's what I said. Money is not the answer. So whether I have a little or a lot will not determine my mood. If your mood is enhanced or depressed for very long for, by how much money you have, you likely have a money issue. It may even be your God. But there's more to living foolproof. There's more to Avoiding ways that make you foolish. And this second thing, besides self-absorption, this second thing is an ugly cousin to self-absorption. Let's look at it in Luke chapter 12, verse 22. We'll pick up there. Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. 
Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do a small thing like that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat, nor about what you're good to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. So here's the second thing I want you to see. An anxious life is a fool's life. Here's the straight talk about foolishness. Command, don't live as a worry ward. See, Jesus called attention earlier to what it's like to live with, how do I preserve all that I have and how do I expand my kingdom? That's the first part. To the second part is how in the world do I make sure I have enough? How do I worry enough to make sure I got enough? Parents, I want to speak to you about your children right now. When they're young, they look to you and what you say. Now, you may not think they are, but they do. They look to you for your provision and what you say. One day, I want you to understand, they're going to look at you and what you did. And out of that, they're going to decide whether to emulate you or try to escape you and live differently. Jesus directs our attention to the things that we do daily. Things that we think about, what we're going to eat and what we're going to wear and how we look. And what Jesus said cuts through time. It was applicable 2,000 years ago. It's applicable today. In fact, as I counsel people, I pretty much on the regular find out that one of the things that they argue about is right after church, and it's what? Where are we going to what? You know it because you've done it. These things we get obsessed about, how we appear, what our clothing says about us, and that's the crux of it. Regardless of time, we get obsessed with fleeting things and believe that they speak to our status and rank and our happiness. And right now, whether you care a lot about those things or carry very little, I want you to know the enemy loves to use those as tools of anxiety in your life. And so whatever your degree of concern, Jesus says this. Jesus says, your worry is not going to change it. And he addresses the issue by taking us someplace that we all need to go. He takes us outside. 
Yes, literally outside into nature. And he says, look around you. Everyday nature tells the story of a God who cares about the small things in beautiful ways. And you, you are more valuable than the birds or the flowers, which he cares for every day. And do you know that all of that care is done primarily out of view of human eyes? He's doing it all the time. Notice Jesus compels us to look someplace differently than we typically look. And that's the problem. We tend to prone and we are prone to look inward looking at ourselves and comparing ourselves to other people. We look in, we look at other people. But God says, get outside and look up. Look up, look up, look up, look up. When we look in and compare, Jesus is warning here about greed. One of the things that this produces is greed. Lust after other things, wanting what other people have. And it lies dormant or is alive in all of us. But when you take time to consider how God provides for his creation, it shifts your focus from inward to God's beautiful provision. God has given us nature to remind us. He provides for his his planet. And all of those things, all of these things are transient. They're in flux all the time. They come, they go, they come, they go. And everything in our life is the same way, except for one thing, and that is your soul. I believe there's both assurance and warning evident in this passage as Jesus says something in verse 30. For all the nations of the world seek these things. The fleeting things. In other words, Jesus is saying, hey, all of you followers of me, do you know that you can just look like everybody else, like all the nations of the world? You can look just like everybody else. And guess what? Your children are watching. Your friends are watching. Don't be a fool. If you live that way, that's the legacy that you will leave. So I will ask you, do your children see you worry and be passionate about fleeting things? What do they witness in your life? Do they see you saying and showing that you know that God provides, that God is faithful, that you know your faithful father? You understand what Jesus said here? He knows what you need. There's one more important thing I want you to see. I want you to understand. I want us to rehearse. I want us to revisit. And if you live this way, I'm going to tell you, your life will be more foolproof. Now, I want to pause before I get to this. I want to tell you right now, I am captain of the fool's club. My children can tell you that. My wife can tell you that. I have been captain of the fool's club at different phases of my life. And if you don't think that you're a fool from time to time, you just now were a fool. You will be foolish. You will make foolish decisions. You can repent of your foolishness. 
You can change. God's power will help you change. And I think it's found really in what Jesus says in verse 32. It's the third thing I want you to see. Jesus says something that on the surface may cause you to go, I don't know why he threw this in right there, but I'm going to explain. Jesus says, fear not, little flock, for it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. God desires to give you what matters most. This great promise comes to us in two pieces. Look at what Jesus says first. He says, fear not. That is an imperative. That means it's a command. Jesus is saying, do not be afraid. And if you don't know this, you need to understand this. This is the number one command in all of Scripture to God's people. Don't be afraid. In the Old Testament, God is continually saying to his people, don't look at them, look at me. Don't look at them, don't be afraid, keep your eyes on me. But the command is not mean. It comes to us in a tenderness. Do you know that fear is not just a tender, uh, not a tendency that you have? It's not just a tendency. It's an enemy to a thriving walk with God. So I will tell you, you're going to have to fight fear. You're going to have to fight fear with truth. You're going to have to think it. You're going to have to speak it. And you're going to have to trust God with the outcomes. Think it, speak it, trust God. Hear Psalm 56, 3 and 4. When I'm afraid, I will put my trust in you. In God, whose word, there it is. That's where you can go to see God. In God, whose word I praise. In God, I trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Second here, Jesus moves beyond this imperative command to speak to us with care. When you look at the text there and it says little flock, in the original language in the Greek, this is a double diminutive. And if you don't know what that is, it's because... We don't do it well in English. It doesn't make a lot of sense. We don't use it. It's kind of like saying a short novel, a novella. A novella, short novel. It's kind of like that. It just doesn't have the punch, though. But in the Greek and in in the German language, man, it's got punch. And the punch is this. It is a gentle whisper. It's kindness. There's special emphasis on gentle communication which is grace-filled, meant to remind and intently nurture the attention of those that are his. Everybody look at me right here for a second. It's kind of like Jesus doing this. Is Jesus saying, I see you, I see you. I know you. And I really do know everything you're concerned about. God's going to take care of those things. Because he takes pleasure, hear this, because he takes pleasure in giving you the best thing. 
the very best thing. And if you want to live a less foolish life, you can't live without the best sharply in focus. The best news is that God will give you what your heart ultimately longs for. It may crave all kinds of things in them between, but deep down God has designed you to long for right standing with him, for you to know forgiveness of your sin, for you to have security as his adopted child, and for you on this Mother's Day in 2022 to realize you've got new life right now, brand new life in God on your side. And you will know and understand the reality that there's coming a day when all of your foolishness and mistakes, all of your regrets, all of that, your best, best, best days, all of that is going to live in the shadow of his mercy and grace in eternity. Oh, church, we have got to be a people that understand something about the gospel that we often miss. Do you know Grace Fellowship is a church? We have people tell us all the time, it's like, goodness gracious, I feel like I'm in seminary sometimes. It's like high orthodox teaching. Yes, we're devoted to opening God's word and saying what it says. But one of the temptations for a people who love orthodox teaching is to see that the gospel is true. It's true, it's true, it's true. Truth, 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 truth. But one of the problems with truth is like, it's saying, hey, the parking lot's made of asphalt. Is that true? It's true. When you lose sight that the gospel is more than true, It's easy for you to understand. It's easy to understand why you miss its wonder. Because the gospel is not only true, the gospel is wonderful. The gospel is wonderful. The gospel, if it's true but not wonderful, it stands to reason why we discount its power to change us. And if it's wonderful but not really true, then the reality is we're all living as fools. But it's both. God accomplished for us what we could not, and he gives it to us. He gives it to you. He's not saying, okay, how serious are you about following me? He sees the beggar at the feast and says, here it is. There it is. He gives it to you. See, mercy, love, and grace are ours Because God is mercy, love, and grace for those who trust in Christ. He is the embodiment of it. He is mercy, love, and grace now for you. And so let's talk about you for a moment. I know that you don't want to live foolishly. But it could be that you actually are. It could be that you've argued in yourself and convinced yourself that worrying is okay, obsession about yourself is okay. And let me just stop here just for a second. I can tell you, people, there's people who can tell you if you're obsessed with yourself. There's a self-test. Here's a self-test. 
If you talk more than anybody else in the room, that's a pretty good indicator. There's a second one. Your closest friends can probably tell you if you're pretty obsessed with yourself. We all have a tendency. I don't want you to feel bad. I just want you to feel sober about it. That there's no promise in Scripture for those that live obsessed and worrying all the time. Isaiah 50, verses 10 and 11. Isaiah wrote, Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light. Walking in darkness, having no light. Here's what the admonition is. Trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Let that person do that. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourself with burning torches. Walk by the light of your fire and by the torches you have kindled. And then God says this. If you do that, this is what you'll have for my hand. You shall lie down in torment. That word for torment is a Hebrew word that's often interpreted other places as sorrow. You will lie down in sorrow if all you're doing is busy, 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 thinking about you and worrying about your tomorrow. All of this is to say that we're all leaving a legacy of some kind. Mom and dad, self-absorbed living is foolish. It's the lighting of your fire. Worry-laden living is foolish. And you don't have to be a mom and dad to leave a legacy of foolishness by how you live. Is God in view? Do you have him in view? Even when you're walking in discouragement and darkness, will you right now, in the dark, say, oh God, help me to trust you. Help me not to live a fool's life. Help me. I want you to know if you're in this room today with the burden of worry and self-obsession, God is willing to lift that burden today. The cross is the answer to all the mistakes of your life. Forgiveness, hope, new life beginning today. And the promise of adoption, to be made right with God, to be loved now and forevermore. Let's pray. Father, all of us in this room, you know us, you see us, you know what our tendency is. And for those of us first who sit here and our life is just consumed with us, would you please show us the beauty of Jesus' face and lead us out of our focus on self, out of our worry, out of our wonderful plans for ourselves. Would us help us to embrace your plan? Lord, for the church, for God's people here who are devoted to you, make the gospel both true every day. And oh, Lord, may the glory of its wonder and beauty captivate us every day. By your spirit, do these things among us, Lord. 
in Jesus' name.